Father, we do say, come Lord Jesus. Uh, we desire him to come and to, to take us away, to uh, glorify us, that we would be with him and our loved ones forever. And yet, uh, Father, you have revealed there is work to be done here. That it is, as long as you have us alive, there is your work that needs to be done. And Lord, I thank you for the privilege that you give each and every one of us who know you to serve you. And Lord, as we look into your word today, I do pray that uh, you would open our hearts and minds to see exactly what you intended in this passage, Lord God. It's, it's quite uh, miraculous and wonderful what we will see today. And Lord, I just pray that we will come away with a right understanding that affects our hearts so that Christ would be magnified. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time. We commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to see a tremendous, wonderful reality that God the Son, who had all the privileges of God, uh, yet for our sakes, in obedience, willingly yielded those rights to obey the Father, ultimately to bring redemption for us through his sacrifice on the cross. We're going to see today that for our sake, Jesus did not hold on to his rights. He did not hold on to what was rightfully his, but out of love, he humbly yielded them for our sake. And it's in this context, the Apostle Paul is going to use the example of Christ to exhort the body of Christ, and that includes us, to think the same way that Jesus Christ thought, uh, which will bring about true unity. And so with that in mind, this brings us to what we're going to see today, how we can maintain true unity in the church. And we're, we're coming to the third part of this as we come to the perfect example of Jesus Christ, which we are to think like, and we'll see that we are to be thinking like Christ Jesus. Would you turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 8. Philippians chapter 2. And again, the context for the book of Philippians, Paul is writing the believers in Philippi while he is under prison, in prison under house arrest in Rome. It's about uh, 10 years since the church in Philippi was started in 52 AD. Acts 16 reveals that. And Paul has already shared his thankfulness for God's work in these true believers, his past work in them. And, and that thankfulness brings him to, to praise God and, and pray for them. And he is confident that God will complete the work that he started in these true believers, the Philippians. And he prayed for them, and, and we saw that uh, within that prayer, he prayed that their love for Christ would abound in true knowledge and discernment, that they would be able to approve the, the things that are excellent. And, and that's what is a good prayer for us, that our love would abound for one another in Christ in, in true knowledge and discernment, that we would be able to discern and approve the things that are excellent, to, to discern understand what is right and what is wrong in the context of our own thinking and lives and other things. And then we saw the Apostle Paul shared his circumstances, that he was in prison, but the gospel was not imprisoned, that God was using even those circumstances to spread the glorious truth concerning Christ. And within that, the Apostle Paul knew that he would be coming before Caesar and that the possibility of his death was very real, and he understood that. And he shared with the Philippians that to, to live is Christ. To live is to be doing his will. To live is to be about Christ. To die is gain. It's very much better. 
But he shared that it's useful for him to stay around for the Philippians' sake. We see an example in the Apostle Paul of servanthood and, and humility. Indeed, uh, the Apostle Paul shares in the beginning of the book that he's a bondservant of Christ. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. And then he then goes from sharing his circumstances to the circumstances of the Philippians we saw that they were to live as heavenly citizens uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel, the great call which God has brought forth through Jesus Christ. And they should be standing true, standing firm in the truth and striving together for the truth, not afraid of, of opposition, uh, which is a sign for those who don't know the Lord that they're on their way to, to damnation, but for those in Christ that they're on their way to glory. And then we came to chapter 2, which, which is on the foundation of their unity in the midst of opposition, in which we saw uh, very clearly how we are to maintain unity in the church. Specifically, today we're going to see the tremendous example of Jesus Christ. Look at our passage here, and I'm going to read, uh, before we get to our specific passage, I want to read coming up into it here in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection or compassion, make my joy complete, Paul says, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And do you remember we saw that to first have unity, we need to understand the basis for unity that we all share as true believers, the things that we have in common that encouragement or exhortation through the word from Jesus Christ by his spirit to us, God's tender, persuasive, consoling love demonstrated in what Christ did through his sacrifice, the fellowship that we believers share in the Holy Spirit and the tender mercy exhibited in a gracious God uh, saving us, giving his son for us. Those, those truths would permeate the reality of every true believer. And from that, Paul said, make his joy complete by being of the same mind. Think the same way. He's talking about unity, unity. And when we do think the same way, we saw that there's going to be a unity of thought. It will manifest in loving the same things, the things of Christ, the things of, of his word and the things concerning his church. And we will also have full agreement. We will be united in spirit or literally soul. We'll have full agreement on the soul level. And then we will be intent on one purpose or literally thinking the one thing, thinking the one thing. And then last week we saw how unity in practice actually flushes out in our relationships concerning one another. We saw in verse 3 that we are to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Not one thing are we to do motivated from selfish ambition or empty glory. Not one thing, but rather with humility of mind, we are to regard one another as more important than ourselves. And then you, we continued where we are not to look out simply for our own personal interests, but for the interest of others. We're to be scoping out, looking for uh, the interests of others, to, to see others as more important than ourselves. And that's what it's going to look like in practice. Well, how did you do last week? Were you doing that? What did, were you scoping out, looking for the interests of others in the context of obeying the Lord? Um, 
Well, we're going to see that he even gives us more information on how we can be united. He gives us actually the key piece of information today concerning the mindset that each and every true believer should have towards one another. And here's our passage, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Folks, this is a tremendous passage. And in a nutshell, we are given the thinking of Jesus Christ, the supreme example concerning what he did for us. We are, giving, we are given the mind of Christ from God through his word about what Christ did for us. Now, most of us uh, realize that the church is full of redeemed sinners, right? Who struggle with sin. And unity is difficult at times. And inevitably, our sin will bring about division, right? It will. And there's that old saying, you know, to dwell with saints above, oh, that'll be glory. But to dwell with saints below, well, that's another story, right? And we know that, right? Because we're sinners. So how can we have unity? How can we have unity together in this sin-cursed world with uh, these unglorified bodies? How can we believers have unity? Well, first of all, we're going to see we are commanded to think like Christ. Commanded to think like Christ. Look at verse 5. He says here, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Which was also in Christ Jesus. Do you want to know how we can have unity? Have this attitude. Or that word attitude is the same word we saw earlier in chapter 2. It's phroneo. It speaks of mind or thinking. It speaks of mind or thinking. Have this mindset or think this way. Think this way. Again, we saw it was translated mind in the beginning of verse 2, purpose in the end of verse 2, that it simply means to think. To think. Remember, in verse 2, we were to think the same way. We were to think the one thought. We were to think like Christ. Now we have this command. To think, to have the mindset that was actually in Christ Jesus. To think the way God the Son actually thought concerning His incarnation and concerning us. We are to think the same way. We are to continually, habitually, it's actually a, a, a verb that speaks of continual habitual action. Have this mindset or thinking in yourselves. It's not on the outside. It's in your heart. It's what you're thinking, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, before we look at the specific example of his mindset revealed in Scripture, for those of you who weren't with us last week, you probably ask, how can we who are so different think the same way? How can we have this attitude or mindset well, today we're going to see it comes directly from the Word of God. And that's what we saw last time. We only have God's thinking in God's Word. Now, we don't have His complete mind, but we have what God has thought and wants to relay to us. We saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that we have the mind of Christ. It's in the Scriptures 
that we have God's thoughts revealed to us. And so we saw in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit. So if you're not saved, you don't accept it. It, it doesn't make sense to you. You may, you may understand it, but you don't accept it. It's not, it doesn't make sense, ultimately. But we as believers, we have been given the Spirit of God that we may know the things freely given to us by God, those things which were hidden but now have been revealed. We have the mind of Christ. And to be like-minded, although we have the mind of Christ in the Word of God, guess what? It's not always running in our hearts, is it? Right? We need to renew our minds. We need to renew our minds with the truth of the Word of God. We need to allow God's Word to change our thinking. God's Word to convict us, then to correct us, then to train us, right? And to teach us. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world. Don't by default be like the world and be selfish and self-focused. That's the way it is. But what we see here is that we should be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. We're to set our mind on the things above, the things of Christ. And where do we have those? In the Word of God, right? We're to have the Word of God dwelling richly in us. So to be like-minded, we have to have the mind of Christ, his truth ruling and reigning our thoughts. You know, we can have his truth in our things, but sometimes it's not ruling and reigning. Our own opinions or about our attitudes, whatever, are ruling and reigning. We just humbly confess and submit to the Lord and allow his word to, to permeate our hearts. So with that in mind, back to our text, Paul commands these believers, have this, it's a command, have this mindset in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Now you say, why does he say Christ Jesus this way? Why does he say and describe him this way? Well, I think the order of the words are important. We know that Christ speaks of the anointed one, the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who the Old Testament reveals would have to suffer before he would be glorified. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He would die for our sins. The Messiah would have to die first, and then he would come and reign in glory. We have the Christ, and then Jesus. Jesus is his human name given to him when he took on human flesh. The Lord is salvation. That's what Yeshua means. And so I think Paul is deliberately inspired by the Spirit, ordering it this way, because first of all, we're going to see that Christ always existed. But then God took on human flesh, and he was named Jesus. Have this mind which was in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. So with that in mind, have this attitude, which was in Christ Jesus. We are to be thinking his thought. We are to be thinking like him in regards to some specific things. Now, before we look at the mindset of Christ, as we're going to see in the incarnation, when I say incarnation, that speaks of when God took on human flesh. I need to ask the question, do you realize that we are being commanded by God to think this way? And obviously, when we don't think this way, we're not obeying God, right? The Lord God, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you should want to obey him, right? We are to make disciples, baptize, that's affirming, Matthew 28, then teaching them to do or observe all that he did and said. Disciples want to obey. They're not rebels. Rebels are non-believers. Disciples want to obey. And so we are being taught to have this attitude. Yet we are sinners and we have bad attitudes that come throughout the day, don't we? 
but we need to realize they're bad, realize they're wrong, and change our thinking, renew our minds, as we will see, and have this attitude, which was in Christ Jesus. And so here, at this point, we're going to be given a a glimpse into the thought process of the Savior in the midst of the incarnation. Incredible thought. Verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we're going to struggle with this. If we're to have the mindset of Christ, this is kind of interesting. I thought about this as I was studying this. How can we have the mindset of Christ in this way if we're not actually going to the cross? If we're not God, right? How do we have his mindset? Well, obviously, it's going to have to apply to us in some way. And so be thinking about that. But we can gather from his mindset in what he did, as only God could do, how we are to think as his subject, as his creation. So here we have a tremendous passage, tremendous passage where we're going to see uh, the incredible reality of how God thought during the incarnation, how the Son of God, Christ Jesus, thought Now, before we get into our passage, it is a complicated passage. I kept praying, Lord, I pray we don't get caught up in the complexity of this. I pray we don't get caught up in that. But it is complicated. And so I'm going to share a few things right now. And don't worry about remembering them. But when I touch on them later on, you'll probably go, oh, yeah, I remember that now. But there are a few things going on in this passage. First of all, there are some verbs here. Have this attitude in yourselves. That's for us. But then we have, in verse 6, he existed in the form of God, and the first one, did not regard, okay? Then there's another one, emptied himself, okay? And there's another one, he humbled himself, okay? Now, the first two verbs are connected with a contrast. Didn't regard, but emptied himself, okay? That's the first section. Then there's another section, he humbled himself, okay? And then there's a bunch of different words being used here. Form and, and uh, likeness and, and uh, you know, the, the, so appearance, right? So we have to recognize what is going on with these different words. When different words are being used, it's, it's, there's something intended behind, behind those words. And the first one of those words which we'll look at is the word form. Word form. It says in, in verses 6 and 7 we have it, he was in the form of God, and then he was took on the form of a bondservant. Those are two things where it's using the same word. So there's obviously a comparison between the two, okay? Now this term form, morphe, uh, speaks of an outward display that reflects an inward reality. An outward display. You think of something that morphs into something else. Well, it's really showing what it really is, you see? It's an outward display of an inward reality. And then we have uh, some verbs here that are the same. In verse 7, we have a verb translated being made, and verse 8, becoming. It's the exact same verb. I wish they would have translated it the same way. Same tense, same voice, everything. It should be translated this way, having become. Having become. Okay? So that's another thing. Don't need to hold on to that. I'll mention it later. And then there's another word called that's translated likeness in verse 7. Homoi, homoi ma, oma. 
Homoi Oma, all right? <laughs> okay? And it speaks of, it speak, it's translated likeness. It speaks of a common experience. Common experience, okay? And then there's another word, appearance, okay? And this is different. These are all different shades with different meanings. It's schema. It speaks of that which may be known from without. From without. So you've got form and likeness and appearance. And they're used specifically in certain spots for a certain reason. Okay? So with that in mind, let's take a look at our passage. And I believe, first of all, we're going to see the mind of Christ in relationship to our position. And then the mind of Christ in relationship to our practice. All right? Verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, in the middle of verse 6 is is the main statement that Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. We have the command, first of all, have this attitude. And then in verse 6, who which was in Christ Jesus, verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, here's the main verb, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Although he existed, modifies, did not consider or regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so first of all, he says, who, although he existed in the form of God. Who, speaking directly from verse 5 of Christ Jesus. He existed in the form of God, the morphe, as I mentioned, of God. The form, it speaks of the outward manifestation that constitutes the exact reality of its essence. In the form of God. He didn't just look like God on the outside. He was God and he expressed it. He expressed it. And he is God, by the way. We see here... Our passage says, who, although he existed, continually, habitually existed in the form of God. Christ Jesus continually existed in the form of God. Paul begins his discourse by affirming the deity of Christ and his continual existence, obviously before the incarnation, continually existing in the form of God and manifesting it and manifesting his deity. We have lots of passages that share the truth concerning the deity of Jesus Christ, but let me share a few. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus Christ, God the Son, is God. Hebrews chapter 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom which he made the world, and speaking of Christ, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. We know Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, means preeminent of, of all creation. For by him, speaking of Christ, all things are created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and, guess what, for him. We were created for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Jesus holds it all together, so trust him, right? 
Colossians 1.9, for it was the Father's, 19, was Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells, Colossians 2.9. We, we have the reality that Christ Jesus, God the Son, is God. Is God. And yet we know that He had glory before He came and took on human flesh. He continually manifests His deity outwardly. Who He was on the inside was manifest clearly. Although He existed continually, habitually, in the form of God, the form which you see is what is on the inside, the morphe of God. We see in John 17, verse 5, Jesus prays the night He was betrayed, and now glorify me together with thyself, Father, with the glory with which we had before the world was. Put me back in the place where I was. And we're going to see after this portion, he is highly exalted and put back where he was in his rightful place. You see, but he, as we'll see today, humbled himself for our sake. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We see the Lord in his glory. We see the Lord in his glory. Isaiah chapter 6. You see, we're going to see later on, the contrast is he existed continually, habitually in the form of God. He is God, and you, and you could see he was God, but then we're going to see he instead became in the form of a bondservant. What you saw was a bondservant in flesh. You didn't see God's manifesting of his glory. You saw a bondservant who was truly a bondservant. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, and each having six wings, and two, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the thresholds of the thresholds trembled, at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me. This is the right attitude towards your own sin, by the way. Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen what? The king, the king, right? The Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity has been taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? You see, you've got to have your sin taken care of before you can serve the Lord. Another line there, another understanding. We'll see that. But we see Isaiah seeing the Lord, the king, on the throne. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. God continually, God the Son continually, habitually existed in the form of God before the incarnation. Continually, habitually. Ezekiel chapter 1, excuse me, Ezekiel 1. Now above the expanse there was over their heads, there was something resembling, verse 26 resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne high up was, notice this, a figure with the appearance of a man. 
Then I noticed the form, then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something glowing like metal, looked like fire all around it and within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward I saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him. And the appearance of the rainbow and the, as the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, which was the appearance of the surrounding radiance, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Jesus Christ, whom we see in his humility in the Gospels. Jesus Christ, God the Son, continually, habitually existed as God. You see? And that helps us understand how much more of what he temporarily did not consider that to hold on to. So, the God of the universe, existing his glory, receiving the worship due, yet, as we will see, was willing to temporarily become poor for our sake. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that although he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that that through his poverty you might become rich. The God of all glory, who continually, habitually existed in the form of God. But what do we see here? Notice we see that during the incarnation, he did not cling to his equality with God. This is a mindset that we're going to have to take on, that we are commanded to take on. Verse verse, uh, 5 again. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed continually habitually in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is the mindset of the Savior in the Incarnation. The term regard speaks of making a decision after weighing the facts, thinking, considering. This is the mindset of Christ revealed for us. He did not regard, and what did he not regard? Equality with God, a thing to be grasped. You see, Jesus Christ is God. And what does he mean by he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped? Well, this term grasped is an interesting term, harpagmos. It basically speaks of a forceful grabbing or seizing. It's related to the verb that we have, which we call the rapture, harpazo, where Jesus grabs us and takes us away, right? It's related to that. And it can be translated basically two different ways. It can be translated in a negative sense of like someone unlawfully grasping something or robbing something, right? That's why we have in the King James, New King James, he did not think it robbery. That's why it's translated that way. Or it could speak of in a positive sense, a treasure in a sense to be hold, held on to or retained. Something valuable to be held on to, okay? Grasped or held on to. So with this in mind, which of those two possibilities is it? I think in context, it's speaking of the latter, something valuable to be held on to, to be held on to. He did not regard equality with God, something to be held on to, something to be held on to. He did not cling to that equality. This is the mind of Christ. But yet, what does this mean? What does it mean when he took on human flesh? He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did that mean? What does that mean? Well, we'll see in context that Jesus Christ, God the Son, humbled himself and took on human flesh. And while doing so, you see this in the Gospels, 
he did not independently exercise his prerogative as God apart from the Father ordaining it. He came to do his will, not my will, but thy will be done. And what he did, even did his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we see. He depended upon the Father. He kept entrusting himself, just as we are to do so. He did not express or use his deity apart from what the Father willed. Now, the Father did will at times for him to expose who he really is. Look at the Mount of Transfiguration. We see that. We see other times. He never ceased to be God. He always claimed to be God, but he did not independently use his prerogative of deity during the incarnation. He gave up his rights, as we will see, to equality with God to save us, to die for our sins. He walked in submission and dependence and, as we will see, obedience to the Father. When you are equal with someone, you don't need to obey them. But he did not see equality as a thing to be grasped. But as we'll see, he emptied himself and he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. Have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God. God and he expressed it for all eternity past. Did not think equality with God, a thing to be held on to. He would receive it back, glorifying with the glory which we had before the world was. But during the incarnation, as he was about the Father's will, he did not see that as something for him to hold on to. Tremendous, incredible humiliation. Tremendous, incredible humility. He didn't cling to his equality with God, but yet he still claimed it, didn't he? He'll still claim that he was equal. He never became uh, just a man. He was always God the Son in human flesh. Yet he gave over his divine prerogative to reveal his glory and to express it independently of the Father. Look at John chapter 5. We'll look at a few passages in John. We'll see very clearly he didn't uh, stop being God, but he still claimed to be God. He still claimed it. John 5 verse 18. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill Christ because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, John 5.18, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He is equal with God in position, but in practice he humbled himself and his mindset was he didn't even hold on to that equality, you see? You see what I'm saying? You can understand something that's real and claim it as true, but yet when you humble yourself, he didn't say, oh, I'm not God, I'm not God. No, he was God. But he humbled himself. He did not see that equality as a thing to be grasped. John 10:33. When Christ asked the leaders what they, why they wanted to stone him, they answered, "For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God." You see, they they knew what he claimed, right? Right. John 10:38. Jesus said to them, "If if I do the works of the Father, though you don't believe me." Believe the works that you may know and understand. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. John 14, 9, Jesus said to Philip, He who has seen me has seen the Father. You've seen the nature of God, right? John 20, 28, Thomas addressed Jesus, said, My Lord and my God. You see, there are some people today that deny that Jesus is equal to God. 
Yet at that time, Jesus lived among his worst among his worst enemies. They understood that he claimed to be God. They understood that. Yet during the incarnation, he was willing to and did give up his right to outwardly express his deity and independently use his divine attributes. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. He became a servant. A servant. A servant has a master, right? He could have had complete, claimed complete equality and, and acted independently. He did not do that, as we will see for us. What humility. With a humble spirit, he would depend upon the Spirit of God and obey all to bring about our redemption because he loves us. Now this brings the difficult question, what about an application for us? We're not God. We're not leaving glory, Right? We're not, we don't have a prerogative like that that we have to not consider ourselves equal to. So what is the application? How are we to have the mind of Christ in the, from this example? How does it apply to us? What's the context? Seeing others is more important than yourself. That's the context, right? That's the context of this passage. Folks, we see just earlier in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind that each of you regard regard right one another as more important than himself you see in christ jesus we are brothers and sisters in christ there is neither slave nor free nor greek nor jew nor gentile in christ through salvation we're on the same level all having been saved by the grace of god we're on the same level And yet I believe we should not regard that as something to be held on to. We are to see ourselves as lower than one another. We're to consider one another as more important than ourselves. More important than ourselves. And the way we do that is by serving one another. The way we do that is by becoming a servant of one another. We value one another as more important than ourselves. We lower ourselves in our mind. Even though we are equal, we lower ourselves. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to. We want to hold on to our rights. We need to give them up. We need to give them up. We need to see ourselves as lower in a sense. We need to recognize what God says. We are to have this attitude which was in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And as we will see, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Have you ever deliberately chosen for this time on earth to consider others as actually more important than yourself? That's really it. God the Son, the supreme example, chose to choose us as more important than himself. You see, and he came and he did the Father's will. And how we do that is by obeying God and doing his will, by the way, as we're going to see. How I practically see you as more important than myself is by obeying God. And that will relate to you. It's by obeying God in my thoughts towards you and towards you and towards you. It's by obeying God in my actions towards you and towards you and towards you. It's obeying God in what I do in terms of obeying his word. The Lord Jesus considered us as more important than himself. He did this for us out of love. And I believe this is the perfect example of humility, what Christ did in the incarnation. And we are to have the same attitude, the same mind. You see, we think we're pretty important. Our lives revolve around us, don't they? Right? 
Now, we saw earlier we're not merely to take care of our own interests. Yes, you don't just not take care of yourself, but look out, scope out for the interests of others. In the context, it's the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ. So then, how did he do this? How did he do this? There's more to it. So first of all, I don't see myself on an equal footing. Wives, don't see yourself on an equal footing with your husbands. Husbands, don't see yourself on an equal footing on your, with your wives. Let's not see ourselves on an equal footing with anybody. They are more important. They are more important. That's the mindset of Christ. And we are commanded to have this attitude. Have this attitude. And if I have this attitude, it's going to manifest in a certain way obeying the Lord Jesus in regards to what he's called me to do in relationship to you. To you. Look at our passage. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, in verse 7, just a little note, you'll see the and is in italics, and I think that's a good uh, translation. It's really not in the original text. And the reason why I think you should not see that end there from my perspective is because the statement in verse 7, I really believe, works with verse 6 and 7, not, not 8. Okay? The end makes you put it in verse 8 in a, in a list of things. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But emptied himself, verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant, having become in the likeness of men. That's a good translation. Having become in the likeness of men. Now, did you notice there's a, tra- there's a uh, contrast here, verse 7. But, and you could translate this type of contrast in Greek, but rather, but rather, instead of holding on to one's rights as God and to express those rights, in the incarnation, he did something instead. He did something instead. Instead of holding on his rights, he let him go. So now false humility might just let it go and just let it be like that. That's false humility. True humility lets go your rights and then serves in obedience to the Lord. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Again, the comparison is existing in the form of God, but rather and became in the form of a bondservant. Same word. And then having become made or made in the likeness of men. The marvel of the incarnation during this time, the incredible humility of what Jesus did, willingly and voluntarily, as we're going to see, emptied himself. The term emptied is translated made of no reputation. It comes from the word uh, uh, kanao. It literally means to empty the content of something, to pour it out. That's, I mean, that's what it literally means. Now, there are some liberal, non-believing Bible scars that would say Christ emptied himself of his deity. However, first of all, that would be impossible because God cannot cease to be God. And, and as we see later on, even our passage proves that their blasphemous statements are wrong. And all those passages I read in John, he still claimed to be God. He didn't empty himself of deity, folks. But he emptied himself of something, didn't he? He had to pour it out, in a sense. So what did he empty himself of? What does that mean? So he did not regard, in contrast, but emptied. And this is the mindset we're to have. Not regard, some, that equality be grasped, but empty. Okay? What does this mean? He emptied himself, how so? Look at this passage. Taking the form of a bondservant. 
How did Jesus empty himself? He took on the form or morphe of a bondservant. He continually existed in the form of God, and then he took on human flesh, and he took on the form of a bondservant. You see, we're going to see the portions about him taking on human flesh, but this speaks of who he was, in essence, a bondservant. He had the prerogatives of God. He was in the form of God, but he, and he continually existed that way. But he emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant. What you would see about Jesus when you looked at him was he was a servant. And that's his true nature underneath, although he's also God, right? He used to exist fully as God, fully showed it, and then he took on human flesh. And the form that he took on was a bondservant. Was a bondservant, because that's... In his nature, his gracious, loving nature, as we're going to see. And we're to think like Christ. We're to think like Christ. Here we have the term doulos, spoke of a, of a slave who completely surrenders himself to the authority and will of another. And any slave, if, you not, if you've talked to a slave or if you've been a slave and you have to sin, I'll tell you that right now, uh, the master is the most important thing, isn't it? Whoever you choose to submit to, right? A good master is wonderful. A bad master is not good. If you're in sin, you've got a bad master. You're slave to sin, right? But when we trusted in Christ, we became slaves of righteousness to a good master. But here it's speaking of God the Son, who is God, who took on the form of a bondservant to, to submit himself to do the Father's will. <laughs> and that's what we need to do. And to do his Father's will was actually in relationship to, to us. To us. So the mindset we're to have is to not see ourselves on an equal footing, to not regard that as something to be grasped, and then to take on the manner of a true servant, as we're going to see. Paul said earlier he was a bondservant of Jesus Christ, Tim and Timothy. We are bondservants if we truly function within who we really are in Christ. Christ Jesus took on human flesh, veiled his glory, and took on the form of a bondservant. Listen to what the scriptures say about that. Uh, Matthew chapter 20. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 20. You see, if we each took on the form of a bondservant, we wouldn't have much argument, would we? We wouldn't have much conflict. We would have a lot of unity, wouldn't we? If we saw each other as more important than ourselves. You'll see that. Matthew 20, 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be the servant. Hey, don't try to rule over people. I'll tell you that right now. shouldn't be that way among believers. If that's your desire to rule over people, you've got a problem. Whether it's your spouse or whether it's the church, whatever it is, that's your desire. That's a problem. He says here, it's not so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you, you shall be, a, shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom. He came to serve. And the ultimate serving was to give his life a ransom. Mark chapter 10:45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We see the mindset of the Son of Man coming. And this is to be our mindset I've come to do your will. Not that we've come from anywhere like Christ, but in, in the mindset, right? I want to do your will. This is what it needs to be about. I want to do your will. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. 
Therefore, when he comes into the world, that's speaking of Christ coming into the world, the incarnation, he says, sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. This is a marvelous thought. Conversation between the father and son. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. Then, this is God the Son speaking, I said, behold, I have come. In the role of the book, it is written of me to what? To do thy will, O God. That's what the mindset of a servant is, by the way. That's the mindset we should have towards one another. To do God's will as revealed in God's word. And that contradicts ourselves, doesn't it? Sure does. And after saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. That's the old and new covenant. By this we will, that's Christ coming and dying for us, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, although he existed in, as God. But rather, he took on the form of a bondservant. He emptied himself. We're to empty ourselves, folks. we got a lot of self going on most of the time. Everything, if you look at all your troubles, it's all about how it relates to me, right? A lot of self going, they did this to me, they did this to me, they said that to me, this happened to me. It's all me, right? We need to empty ourselves. We need to empty ourselves. Empty the jar of yourself, folks. Stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking about yourself. What people have done to you, what happened in your life, stop thinking about yourself. Give those things over to the Lord and start thinking about how he wants you to serve him in relationship to those he has placed in your life. Taking on the form of a bondservant, he emptied himself. How about you and I? How, how full is your cup of yourself? How full is it? I think sometimes it's pretty full. We're pretty full of ourselves. We need to confess, Lord God, these thoughts are not in line with your thinking. They're not in line with your word. I'm sorry. Please help me serve your people. Help me serve you for all the days of my life. Help me serve you. Help me serve you in my marriage. Help me serve you at work. Help me serve you as I go in the world. Help me serve you at church. Help me serve you around other brothers and sisters. He gave his life a ransom to serve us. Through serving, he brought about the forgiveness of our sins. And we're going to see this service brought about a humility through obedience to the point of death. To the point of death. Notice here that in taking on a bondservant, we see the reference to his humanity says in verse 7, but emptied himself, that's, that's a contrast, right? Didn't regard, but emptied, right? Himself taking the form of bondage. That's how he emptied him. And then the end, I told you the end shouldn't be there. It's in italics, so just, just overlook that. And then taking the form of bondage, and there's a participle, having been made in the likeness of men. He became like each and every one of us, yet without sin. That's why he uses the term likeness there. Likeness. He became like all of us. It's a men plural. Now we're going to see man in the next verse, but it's men plural there. It's mankind. It's mankind. Being made in the likeness of men. The term homoioma, 
speaks of a common experience. He was born of a woman just like us. He grew up just like us. He experienced the true reality of humanity to the max, apart from personal sin because he was sinless and spotless. Like us. Like us. He became a bondservant, took on the form of a bondservant, having, having we see here, been, having become the likeness of men. Having become the likeness of men. Tremendous reality. We see, as uh, was read in chapter uh, 14, for, chapter 14, chapter 2, verse 14, Bob read earlier in Hebrews, since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. We know that in the beginning uh, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word uh, was God. And the Word uh, dwelt among us. It took on human flesh, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. In Hebrews, tremendous reality, Hebrews 2, which Bob read earlier, we see that he took on human flesh. He partook of the same. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren, Hebrews 2.17, in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to become like us to serve us by going to the cross. Tremendous, wonderful reality. He emptied himself, how so? By taking the form of a bondservant, having become, that's how you could say it, in the likeness of men the likeness of man. Tremendous reality. He never stopped being God, but outwardly he became a servant. And I mentioned this earlier in Matthew 17. There were times where God the Father ordained that Christ showed his glory. That he showed his glory. Matthew 17, verse 1, and six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and his brother and brought them to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And in those situations where God is revealing who he really is, where the Father is revealing who Christ really is, you see, the Father is well pleased with him, by the way. We have a tremendous reality that before you know the grace of God, that Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, being God, eternally worshipped, um, yet he became poor for our sake. He became a servant, a servile term. He served until the point as we will see to death. Through, the, through his poverty, you might become rich. So what's our application here specifically? We're to think like him, and we're to become servants of one another. We're to think like him. We're to serve one another. If we're to have this mind which is in Christ Jesus, obviously we're not going to be incarnated, right? So that, doesn't, that doesn't apply. But it's the mindset that Christ had in the incarnation that we are to have. We need to empty ourselves of ourselves and become servants. Servants. And who are we servants ultimately of? We're servants of the Lord. We're servants of the Lord. And then that will mean we will serve who he calls us to serve, which is one another. Remember, in the beginning of this passage, it's the only two times these verses are used here, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus. They knew who they were serving. The Thessalonians, when they got saved, they knew they got saved to serve, by the way. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, For they themselves report of what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve 
a living and true God. We either serve sin and self, and it's horrible. It exerts tight control over us. If you're in sin right now, it is exerting tight control over you, and you cannot get free. But if you're willing to humble yourself and admit it exactly what God says, he'll free you. And we're freed to serve a good God. To serve a good God. We see in the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 3, so you will distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Folks, if you're a true believer, God has called you to serve him, and to serve him you have to empty yourself. Guess what? You can't serve the Lord and others if self is really full. You've got to empty yourself. You've got to have this mindset that is in Christ Jesus. Forget all the junk about yourself and let God take care of that. Bring it before the Lord. Bring it before the Lord. He loves to hear your petitions. Empty yourself and see others as more important than yourselves. Voluntarily choose that the stuff in your life is not as important as the stuff going on in their lives. Voluntarily choose that. It's the mindset of Christ. And only by trusting in Christ can you have his mind, by the way. Only in looking and seeing his word and allowing it to permeate our hearts can we have his mind. You see, we're going to be selfish and we need to be reminded of this passage. It needs to go in our heads and remember it. So first of all, we saw the mind of Christ in regard to our position with one another, okay? Now as we finish, we're going to see the mind of Christ in regard to our practice with one another. Verse 8. And being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Pretty straightforward verse. So and, now that and is a good and there, okay? Because it actually puts verse 7 on its own and then verse 8 here. And, okay? And being found in appearance as a man. Singular, not plural, not the common experience spoken of in the last verse. It's a different thing. He humbled himself being found when you came across jesus in the incarnation you found something you saw something and it was an appearance schema it speaks of the outward appearance when you saw jesus that's he he he, there was nothing special about him he was simply a human being although he was also god and being found in the appearance as a man We see in Isaiah 53, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately former majesty that we should look upon him, nor an appearance that we should be attracted to him. He's a normal man. Normal man. What humility. What humility. Although fully God, a normal man, he humbled himself now. So this is the practice of a servant. The position of a servant is obviously seeing yourself as not as important, right? And others as more important, right? This is the practice now. What's the practice of a servant It's obedience. It's obedience. In the context of humility, he humbled himself by, here's how it happens, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The term obedient here is used only a couple times. It speaks of giving ear, obviously to do something. It speaks of listening in order to obey. And it carries the inherent reality of submission of submission, just yielding your will, right? Have you ever seen a dog that is not submissive? And then when they submit, they just go, right? Just do that. With the Lord, give up. Submit and do his will. Do his will. He says he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient. Now we know he uh, learned obedience, or Hebrews chapter 5, through the things he suffered. In his humanity, he walked in dependence on the Father, and he obeyed the Father. He humbled himself by being obedient. You, wanna, you think you're humble? If you're not obeying God, you're not humble at all. You're really prideful. Really prideful. Humility is in the context of submission to God and obedience. And what was it that he did in his obedience? He humbled himself, becoming obedient, even to the point of death, or up to the point of death, even death on a cross. What did he do? He came to serve, right? And to give his life a ransom. That was God's plan for him, to die for us. And he did it, willingly and voluntarily. And he did it for us. He did it because he loved us. He saw us as more important than himself. The prime example that we should have the mind of Christ in. We should be thinking that way. He did that for us. He went all the way to death. He obeyed the Father's will to the ultimate end, which was death on a cross. He died for our sins on the cross, and he rose from the dead. He considered us as more important than himself. He did not, he did not hold to his rights as God to express it and to express his own will. Remember the night he was betrayed? Not my will, but thy will be done. True humility, we see here, comes in the context of a obedience to what the Lord has called you to do. And there's a lot of what God has said. And we're to love one another. We saw that in the other chapter. We're to consider others as more important than ourselves. We don't do that. We're prideful. We're to look out for the interests of others, not merely our own. We don't do that. We're, we're prideful. We're to obey the Lord in relationship to every area of our lives. We're to have the mind that was in Christ Jesus. The mindset in Christ Jesus. Again, the application is obvious, right? The, the position of the mind, the, the mindset that reveals our position is how we look at each other, right? We're going to see ourselves as, as, as see each other as more important than ourselves. The practice is we become obedient servants. Lord God, whatever you want me to do. Someone treats you wrong, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? Lord God, something happens in my life, how do you want me to respond? Choices to make in the future, Lord, how do you want me to respond? Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. He emptied himself, and he humbled himself. And we are called to have the same mindset. Let me ask you this. Do you have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus? As believers, we are to have it. And I know we fail, but we need to confess quickly. And we need to see one another as more important than ourselves. When we have the mindset of Christ in obeying the Father concerning everything we do, we're going to see unity. We're going to have, as we're going to see, joy. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. It's always no fun to sin. I'll tell you right now, if you're in sin, you're not happy. If you're obeying the Lord, there's joy, no matter what's happening. No matter what's happening. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the command that we are to have this thinking that was in your son, Christ Jesus. That although he existed continually habitually in the form of God, God the Son, he didn't grasp that equality. 
but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and he came and served us, doing your will all the way to the cross. He obeyed you perfectly, and we thank you for that. He depended on you perfectly, and we thank you for that. Lord, help us to have this mind, which was also in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for true believers here today that we would confess any sin. We'd be clean before you, and we would start to think rightly about those around us every day. And when we don't, we would confess it, Lord God. Help us to have this mind, which was also in Christ Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen.